Okay, inside your bulletin you find a small white paper that will give you the outline for the study this morning. Go to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I was asked to speak on the topic which is on top of the page, the basis of the second coming, the one precondition that must be fulfilled before Messiah can return for the purpose of setting up his messianic kingdom. Let me clarify, I will not be speaking on the rapture per se this morning. The rapture is part of God's program for the body of the Messiah, for the church, for the Kelah. And that has uh, no preconditions, can happen any moment of time. The actual, actual second coming of the Messiah is part of God's program for Israel, and it has a specific precondition attached to it. Before we can begin to deal with the actual precondition to the second coming, we need to raise another question first, which is, what exactly happened at the time of the rejection of the Messiahship of Yeshua? Once you understand the, pre the issues involved in the rejection, could we, in light of that, understand the precondition to his return. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 12. Now between chapter 4 and chapter 12 of this gospel, Yeshua has been going all over the land of Israel, city to city and synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and authenticating his claims with many miracles and signs and wonders. The purpose of his miracles in the first part of his ministry were to serve as signs for Israel to get them to make a decision concerning those same messianic claims. In Matthew 12, we're about to see the purpose of his miracles will change. But until this point, the purpose of his miracles were to authenticate his messianic claims. And they were to authenticate two things, his person and his message. His person He's the very Messiah that the prophets had been prophesying about. His message, he's offering the kingdom to Israel, the kingdom detailed by the prophets of Israel. So if they'll accept him as the messianic king, they can see the kingdom established in their day. But no such kingdom could be established until they first owned him to be that messianic king. The change begins in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a demon blind and dumb, and he healed them, insomuch the dumb man spake and saw. Now the incident begins when he cast out a demon that caused the person control to be a dumb, meaning a mute, so he could not speak. What we find in the Gospels as we go through them, most of his miracles that he does perform do not exactly authenticate his messianic claims because these were miracles performed by others before his time, like the people of the Old Testament. The certain miracles never performed before in the Old Testament, and these receive a special category. And when he performs one of these kind of miracles, then um, the Jewish response is quite different because it's something only Messiah was supposed to be able to do. And there were three main miracles in that uh, other category. One was the healing of a man born blind. One is the healing of a Jewish leper. But the, one, the other one is what we see right here, casting out a dumb or mute demon. Now the act of casting out demons was not all that unusual in the Jewish world of this day and age. Even the rabbis and their disciples also went around casting out demons. And Messiah even says as much in verse 27 when he asked them, But whom do your sons cast them out? But within the framework of Pharisaic uh, Judaism, to cast out a demon, one had to use a specific ritual. And this ritual had three specific steps. First of all, the exorcist would have to establish communication with the demon, when a demon speaks, he uses the vocal cords of the person he controls. Secondly, after establishing communication with the demon, he would then have to find out the demon's name. Then thirdly, once he knew what the demon's name was, could he use the name to order the demon to go out? And these were three steps of the ancient Jewish procedure. Because that same system of having to communicate with the demon, there was one kind of demon they could never cast out, the kind of demon like this one that caused the person to be a mute so he could not speak. And because he could not speak, there was no establishing communication with this kind of a demon. 
no way of finding out this demon's name, is still within the framework of Pharisaism that was, that was considered impossible to cast this kind of a demon out. When the Messiah comes, he'll even cast out these kinds of demons. And in verse 22, that's exactly the kind of demon that he cast out. And that's the question this raises among the Jewish multitudes in verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? As you know, that's a messianic title. They're asking, could this be the son of David? Could this be that messianic king that we've been told about? And while the Jewish multitudes were willing to raise the question, what they're not willing to do is simply answer the question for themselves. They're looking to the leaders, the Pharisees, to make that decision for them. Now, throughout our history, our people tended to labor or be labor on the complex that we call the leadership complex. Whichever way the leaders go, the people are sure to follow. And we see this frequently in the pages of the Hebrew Bible, that when the king did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, the people followed. But when he did that which was good in the sight of the Lord, he also followed. Even today, when we witness about our faith, the messiahship of Yeshua to our Jewish context, eventually they raise the same objection. If Yeshua really was the Messiah, how come our rabbis don't believe on him? And that's a leadership complex. And in New Testament times, because of the influence of Pharisaism had among the masses, this complex was very strong. So again, while they're willing to raise the question, can this be the son of David, they're not willing to answer the question for themselves, looking to leaders to make that decision for them. In light of all that's been happening between chapters 4 and chapter 12, the leaders have one of two options. The first option would be to proclaim Yeshua to be the Messiah. This they don't want to do because they had previously rejected the authority of Pharisaic Judaism, especially in chapters 5 through 7. The second option would be to reject him, but if they go with the second option, they will at the same time have to be able to explain away how come he can do what they were teaching only Messiah would be able to do. And in verse 24, they go with the second option, and they do reject his messianic claims. And then to explain away his unique abilities, they claim that he himself is possessed, not by a common demon, but by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And Beelzebub is a combination of two Hebrew words that mean the Lord of the Flies. The Lord of the Flies. And this became the official Pharisaic basis for rejecting his messianic claims. Now, this is not only found here in the Gospels, it's also found in the Vedic writings in the, in the Talmud, where two passages reflect the events of Matthew 12 and verse 24. One passage says that the reason they had to execute him on the Passover, though it went contrary to Jewish law to have executions on any festival day, had to do with the nature of his crime, which was he seduced Israel by practicing sorcery. He seduced Israel by the practice of sorcery, as a close connection between sorcery and demonism. A second passage says that when he was living in Egypt, he made these cuts inside of the skin of his flesh. He inserted into his skin the four Hebrew letters of God's name. In Hebrew, God's name comprises four Hebrew letters, our Latin letters would be Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. He inserted this four-letter name of God in Hebrew into his skin, and that's how he can do the miracles which he performed. Neither here in the Gospels or in these two rabbinic writings do they deny the fact of his miracles. But in both cases, they ascribe it to a demonic source. So to understand the precondition to the second coming, it's important also to understand the given reason why they rejected him is that he was demon-possessed by the prince of demons. Yeshua responds by pointing out two things. First of all, in verses 25 to 29, 25 to 29, this accusation cannot be true because it would mean a division in Satan's kingdom. Then secondly, in verses 30 through 37, 30 through 37, he now pronounces a special judgment upon that generation of Israel. 
for being guilty of very unique sin, the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And because the sin is what he calls it unpardonable, judgment is now set down against this generation, a judgment that can under no circumstances be removed or alleviated, a judgment that will finally come in the year A.D. 70 with the Roman destruction of the city and the temple and the forced dispersion of the Jewish people outside the land. Now we should make it very clear in our minds exactly what the unpardonable sin is in the context where it is found. Only context you'll find the sin mentioned is in this context, also in Mark and Luke, but the same context. It must be interpreted by virtue of its context. A more definition, the unpardonable sin can be defined as follows. The national rejection by Israel of the Messiahship of Yeshua while he was present on the basis of being demon-possessed. I repeat, where definition, the unpardonable sin is Israel's national rejection of his Messiahship while he was present on the grounds of being demon-possessed. Now from that definition, let me make four specific ramifications to make the point even clearer. First of all, this is a national sin. It is not an individual sin. Individual members of that day and that duration could still come to faith by coming to believe on him. Nor is this a sin anyone could commit today. It was never individual to begin with. And the Bible makes one thing very clear. Regardless of what sin anyone commits, every sin is forgivable to that individual that will come to God through Messiah's blood, and the nature of the sin is irrelevant. When he died on the cross, he didn't really die for some sins, but not for others. He died for every type of sin, which renders every type of sin forgivable to that individual that will come to God through Messiah's blood. For a nation as a nation, it is now unpardonable. And so to summarize, this is a national sin, not individual. Second ramification. This is a sin that is unique to the Jewish generation of Yeshua's day and not applicable to all subsequent Jewish generations, as church history is often taught. It was to this specific generation that he visibly, physically came, offering himself as the Messiah, offering to set up the Messianic kingdom, and it was this generation that rejected him. So from now on, the gospel should see two words coming up over and over and over again. This generation, this generation, because this generation alone is guilty of this unique sin. So again, to summarize, this is a sin applicable to the Jewish generation of his day and not to all subsequent Jewish generations. Third ramification. While this is a national sin, no other nation could be guilty of this sin because the Messiah is not now visibly, physically present with any other nation offering himself as that nation's Messiah. That was unique to a special role with Israel. A relationship with no other nation but Israel, and there was only one covenant nation, that is the people of Israel. So again, to summarize, no other nation could be guilty of this sin. The fourth ramification is that the commitment of the unpardonable sin by this generation for this generation means two things. First of all, it means we're now under a special divine judgment, a physical judgment of destruction or come in the year 70. But secondly, it also means that um, no matter how many people come to faith, it won't change the faith coming judgment because they've now reached the point of no return. And in God's dealing with his covenant people, once a specific generation goes beyond the point of no return, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And this is the third time in our history that this has occurred. The first time is recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, Numbers 13 and 14, the sin of Kadesh Barnea. Kedis Barnea is an oasis right on the border of the Promised Land. Once you walk past Kedesh, you're in the Promised Land. From that oasis, Moses sent out 12 spies who came back 40 days later, all agreed at one point. The land is all God called it, a land flung with milk and honey. 
There came a certain point of disagreement. Only two men said, God is with us, we can take the land. But ten men said, oh no, because of the numerical superiority and the military strength of these Canaanites, no way we can take the land. As people often do today, they make the faulty assumption the majority must always be right. And it was a massive rebellion against Aaron and Moses. It was the tenth act of rebellion from the time of the Exodus. And that, at that point, that generation, the Exodus generation, reached a point of no return. And God decreed they would not, they would not enter the promised land. They'll have to enter, they will have to now walk around the desert in wandering situations until 40 years pass. In that 40 year period, all who came out of Egypt will die out, except for the two good spies and those below the age of 20. 40 years later would be a new nation, a nation that was born as freemen in the desert and not as slaves in Egypt, though finally enter land under Joshua. Here again, once a port no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. In Numbers chapter 14 states that people did repent. Verse 20 also says, God did forgive their sin. It did not affect anyone's individual salvation. But now have to pay the physical consequences of going beyond the port or no return. And, and which was physical death outside the land. And keep in mind, even Moses had to die outside the land because of a sin he committed, but did not affect his individual salvation. He had to pay the physical consequences of going beyond the port no return in the sin that he committed. And, um, and the issue was physical judgment, not loss of salvation. The second thing, this, the second time this happened in the days of King Manasseh, the details of Second Kings chapter 23 and Second Chronicles 34. Second Kings 23 and Second Chronicles 34. Manasseh was the worst king the Jerusalem ever had. He shed much blood of the remnant of that day, and um, even um, led in the, in the center of uh, idol worship. He turned the temple compound and sent to idolatry, even resorted to a sin that most kings, even bad ones, did not resort to, the practice of human sacrifice. And finally, he went beyond the point of no return, and, he, and God decreed the physical judgment of destruction of the city and the temple by the Babylonians, and also decreed the seven years of captivity. Here again, once a point of no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And Second Chronicles 24 says, at the end of his reign, he did repent. Individually, he became a saved man. He was followed by the righteous rule of King Josiah, who brought revival throughout the country. But God simply said he would not bring on the calamity in Josiah's day. But the calamity itself was now inerrable, a point of no return is reached. And not long after Josiah's death, the Babylonians came. Here in Matthew 12, for the third time, a specific Jewish generation goes beyond the port of no return. What it means is that no matter how many come to believe, and myriads of that day did come to believe, it could not change the coming judgment of AD 70. The point of no return had been reached. After hearing these words of rebuke and judgment, in verse 38, the Pharisees tried to take the offensive by saying, Teacher, we would say a sign from you, implying he had not yet done enough to authenticate his messianic claims. But between chapters 4 and chapter 12, he performed many miracles, including those which were uniquely to be messianic. In spite of all this, they rejected him. So now in verses 40 and 41, announces new policy concerning the purpose of a science. I should say verses 39 and 40, the new purpose for a science. He points out that for the nation, there'll be no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. He will continue to perform many miracles after the events of Matthew 12, but the purpose of his miracles will now change. No longer will the purpose be to serve as signs for Israel. Now the purpose will be to train the 12 disciples 
for the new kind of work they'll have to conduct because of this rejection, the kind of work will find them conducting the book of Acts. But for the nation, there'll be no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. A sign that will come to Israel three different times. The resurrection of Lazarus, the resurrection of Yeshua, and ultimately the resurrection of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 in the middle of the tribulation. That's the only public sign he'll give them from this point on. After announcing his new policy concerning the purpose of his signs, he picks up the theme that was interrupted, the theme of judgment. But now notice the beginnings of the emphasis upon this generation. Verse 41, The men of Nineveh will stand up in their judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Verse 42, The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. He now brings in two Gentile examples from the Old Testament, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. Now these were Gentiles who had a lot less light to respond to but they did respond to lesser light. And so the great wrath throne judgment, these Gentiles would be able to witness against the specific Jewish generation, rejecting the greater light and being guilty of the unpardonable sin. The words of judgment finally conclude in verses 43 to 45 with a story of a different demon, though the point of the story is often missed. He speaks of a demon that was inhabiting a man, but then chose to leave. He was not cast out. He left in his own free will looking for a better flat in which to live. He searches for a while, but when he could find no vacancies, he decides to go back to the person he was then dwelling earlier. When he finds him again, verse 44 says he finds him swept, he finds him garnished, but also notice he finds him still empty. Because in the interval period when man was freed of demonic indwelling, he was not possessed by some other demon or some other spirit, be it the Holy Spirit or demonic spirit. Because he stayed empty, this demon is able to go back in. But he does not wish to live by himself anymore. He invites seven of his buddies to join him. At the end of verse 45, he says, the last state of that man has become worse than the first. Now, the first under Roman domination had to pay annual tribute to Rome, but Rome allowed them to retain their national ethnic identity. Jerusalem was standing. The temple was functioning. They even had a semi-autonomous government in the Sanhedrin. But 40 years after these words are spoken, the legions of Rome come, and after a four-year war and a two-year siege, the city is destroyed, the temple torn down till there's not one stone on top of another. And the point of the story is the end of verse 45. Even so, it will be also unto this evil generation, not again the focus on that generation. And the judgment of the unpardonable sin will fall in the year 70 with the Roman destruction. Now, point three on your outline. At this point, this ministry changes in four important areas. And the first area you already mentioned, the purpose of his signs. No longer will the purpose be to serve as signs for Israel. The purpose now is to train the 12 apostles for the future works. And to summarize, we can say it this way. His signs go from the nation to the apostles. From the nation to the apostles. The second result concerns the miracles themselves and the people for whom these miracles are performed. There are two facets in the second result. The first facet is this. Until this point, he performed miracles for the benefit of the masses. He did not require them to have faith first, as in the case of John chapter 5 and the healing of the man, the pool of Bethesda. The Messiah simply sought the man out, and the man didn't even know who Yeshua was. Yeshua healed him and then told him to do something. And when he was asked by others uh, who healed you, he did not know who it was had to go back and find out who it was. And those are those three things. Number one, there were, he didn't know who Yeshua was. Number two, he didn't, have, uh, didn't know who Yeshua claimed to be. And number three, there's no faith in his part. At that stage, faith was not essential for these miracles to occur. The miracles were there to get them to believe. That will change after Matthew 12. From now on, he'll perform miracles only for the benefit of individuals, and this time he will require them to have faith first. 
we can summarize it this way. His miracles go from masses without faith to individuals with faith. The second facet is, until this point when he healed someone, he could tell him, go and proclaim what God has done for you. After Matthew 12, every time he heals someone, he will tell them, don't tell anyone what God has done for you. He now initiates the policy of silence, and those who benefit from his messianic power are forbidden to tell anyone about it. We can summarize it this way. He goes from tell all to tell no one. The third change concerns the message that he and the apostles would not be proclaiming. Until these events, both he and they were in all over Israel, city to city, synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming him to be the Messiah. But now he will also forbid the apostles to tell anyone who he is. So in chapter 16, when Peter makes a famous confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of the God, living one. Yeshua tells Peter, don't tell anyone, I am the Messiah. And they too must follow the new policy of silence until that will be rescinded in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. And the fourth change concerns his method of teaching. <coughs> his method. Until this point, when he taught the masses, he taught them clearly, distinctly in terms they could and did understand. But after Matthew 12, he will um, teach them only in parables, which happens in chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, on what day? The same day the rejection occurred, the same day the unpardonable sin was committed. Verse 3 says, he spoke to them many things in parables. Now, Disciples ask him, why have you begun teaching them in parables in verse 10? He points out there are two purposes for the parabolic method of teaching. The first purpose is for the disciples, for them the purpose will be to illustrate the truth. But secondly, for the masses, the purpose will be to hide the truth, to teach them in terms they cannot and will not understand. Now look down at verse 34 of chapter 13. <coughs> All these things spoke Yeshua in parables unto the multitudes, and not the next phrase. What a parable spoke he nothing unto them. What a parable spoke he nothing unto them. Now this is not a true statement before, <coughs> before Matthew 12. It's absolutely true after Matthew 12. Now one he teaches only in parables, so they will not understand what he's saying. It's impossible to appreciate why his ministry changes so radically in these four areas, unless we see how important the events of Matthew 12 and 13 are. I would say the events of Matthew 12 and 13 are the most important events in his life, with the exception of his death and resurrection. What happens here, it makes a major change in his ministry in those four areas. It affects Jewish history for the next 2,000 years. Let's go to Matthew 16. Twelve, are we on? Even after Matthew 12, periodically, they come asking for a sign, as they do in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came trying him, asking to show them a sign from heaven. After Matthew 12, the answer is always the same. Look at verse 4. An evil and adult generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. He left them and departed. From that one, the time they want a sign, this will be his answer. No more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. And again, they'll come to Israel three different times. Lazarus, Yeshua, and the two witnesses. Now we'll go to John 11. In John 11, we give a lot of details concerning the, resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. 44 verses worth of detail. Yeah, Lazarus was not the first person he raised from the dead. All the other resurrections are covered from two to four verses. They're witnessed to only by a few, and the few witnesses are then told to tell no one about it. But sharp contrast with the case of Lazarus, we're given a lot of detail, 44 verses worth of detail, in place of being witnessed to by the few, this was witnessed to by the many. 
and the um, multitudes are present about the scene. So what makes this miracle special? It's special is the one son he promised to give them after Matthew 12. And when this son is given, they'll have to respond. And once we recognize the role the resurrection of Lazarus plays in the relationship of Yeshua as Israel's Messiah, we can see why things happen the way they do. Now, we're not going to too much detail here for the sake of time. He, he hears about the illness of Lazarus, but doesn't go anywhere. There will only be a one-day walk to Bethany. Only after Lazarus finally does die, does he begin moving towards Bethany. From place so taken one day, he walks very slow. By the time he arrives into Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. That makes it significant in the Jewish frame of reference because the common teaching among the rabbis was when a person dies, the spirit of the person hovers over the body for three days. So during those three days of hovering, there was a small possibility of a resuscitation. But at the end of the third day, the spirit descends down into Sheol, Hades. From then on, a resuscitation is impossible. Only by miracle of resurrection can the man live again. And rabbinicology, of course, that comes with the coming of the Messiah. So because this to be a sign for the nation, he deliberately set the stage in such a way they could not explain this away by mere resuscitation. Lazarus has been dead for one day too many. And often when this passage is expounded upon, the focus is usually on how to show his love for Mary Martha, no question that's part of it. But it's always wise to look for the textual reason as to why he does what he does. And now the question is, what is the primary reason for raising Lazarus? Look at verse uh, 42. Verse 42. And I know that you hear me always, but because of the multitude that stand around, I said it, that they, the multitude, may believe that you did send me. Notice the primary purpose for raising Lazarus was for the benefit of the multitude. The one son he promised to give them publicly. And when this son is given, they'll have to respond. But in the verse 44, Lazarus is resurrected, and the first son of John is presented. Now there'll be two responses. In verse 45, many respond correctly, and many Jewish people do believe. But in verse 46, many others are still belaboring under leadership complex. And so they report what's happened to the Pharisees. The Pharisees know that this is the one son he promised to give them. He was speaking to them when he made that promise. And so they have to respond. So in verse 47, the Sanhedrin gathers together. In verses 48 to 52, in their deliberations, they decide to carry out the rejection one step further. In Matthew 12, they rejected him on the basis of being demonized. Here in John 11, they go a step further and uh, pronounce the death sentence. Verse 53, so from that day forth, they took counsel, they might put him to death. And the decision to put him to death begins filtering down to the multitudes. Verse 57 says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given commandment that if any man knew it was, he should show it that they might take him. And with this action by the Sanhedrin, the first son of Jonah is officially rejected. Now turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. The context of these verses, the context of the triumphal entry. Literally thousands upon thousands of Jewish people are conducting him to Jerusalem, crying, God, Hoshana, Brucha Baba Shema Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Which, by the way, in the Jewish reference um, perspective of that day, that was the official messianic reading. Rabbis were teaching when Messiah comes, he must be welcomed with these words, for they come from messianic psalm, Psalm 118 and verse 26. Psalm 118 and verse 26. So when they are saying these words and applying them to Yeshua, they're proclaiming him to be the Messiah by the myriads, by tens of thousands. You would think that things could change except for the fact that the unpardonable sin has already been committed. And because of its unpardonableness, when he finally speaks, he speaks words of judgment. In verses 41 through 44, 
41 through 44, it spells out the fact that in spite of these acclamations, they've already gone beyond the point of no return. And Jerusalem is still destined to be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And in that year, these words were quite really fulfilled. Let's go back to Matthew's Gospel and look at chapter 23. There's one theme in this whole chapter, the Messiah's renunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of that day. He pronounces seven woes upon the leaders, but these seven woes form a circle. Variety of different sins, but the first woe, and again the seventh woe, will deal with the same sin. And the first woe is found in verse 13. Here he condemns them for two reasons. Number one, they are rejecting his messianic claims. But secondly, deleting the nation to reject them as well. He elaborates on that sin in verses 29 to 36. Now he says they'll be held accountable not only for rejecting his messiahship, they'll be held accountable for the blood of the prophets of the Old Testament. Because everything the prophets were going to say about the Messiah, but now had been said, and the Old Testament had been closed for about four and a half centuries. So to reject him as the Messiah automatically means rejecting the prophets, and no one can say, not even the most orthodox Jew can claim, to believe the prophets and reject his messianic claims. It's a package deal. Either to accept him is to accept them, to reject him is to reject them. And therefore, they're going to be held accountable for the whole body of revealed written truth. Now keep in mind that when he used the Hebrew Bible, he used in the order of the Jewish Old Testament, not the Christian Old Testament. The number of books between the Jewish and Christian Old Testament is the same, but the order is not the same. The first book is the same, Genesis. The last book is not Malachi, but Second Chronicles. Now look at verse 35, where he names two men, Abel, found in the first book, Genesis, and then a Zechariah, found in the last book, Second Chronicles. But naming these two men, he's saying they'll be held accountable for everything from Genesis Second Chronicles. A Jewish figure speech meaning the whole body are revealed written truth. Much as we would say today from Genesis to Revelation, our figure speech for the whole body are revealed written truth. Now look at verse 36. For they are to you, all these things shall come upon, and there's those two words again, this generation. This generation, guilty of the unpardonable sin, will not be held accountable for the whole body of revealed truth. Not long after these words came the second sign of Jonah, the resurrection of the Messiah, but that will be rejected in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. The stoning of Stephen, Acts 7, will mark the official rejection of the second sign of Jonah. That's why only as of Acts 8, for the first time, does the gospel go out to non-Jews. The first seven chapters was stayed within the Jewish frame of reference. The point I made so far is this. It was the leadership of Israel that led the nation to reject him. They go to page two. Out of that then, what is the precondition to the second coming? What's the one key thing that must be fulfilled? We look at the five passages on your outline. There are more than five in scripture, but these we'll have to deal with in the time we have. And turn to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. I will have to do this fairly quick because uh, my time is almost up. Although I am Jewish, right about now I begin to feel like an Egyptian mummy. Pressed for time. Some of you are slow on that one. In Leviticus 26, Moses outlines what ends up being Jewish history. When he wrote, it was all prophecy. But, but by this point of time, most of this had become history, and the first 39 verses have been fulfilled. And he points out that the, by the end of verse 39, the Jews would be dispersed for rejecting the prophet like unto Moses. But that's not where he stopped to write. And he points out in verse 40 and 41 that someday they're going to return to the Lord, and look at verse 42. Don't I remember my covenant with Jacob? Also my covenant with Isaac. Also my covenant with Abraham. I remember him, and I will remember the land. 
Nelson says God has every intention of fulfilling to the Jewish people all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, especially as it pertains to the borders of the promised land. But the precondition is verse 40, they must confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Those three things in verse 40, the word iniquity is singular. Secondly, it is definite, the iniquity is specific one. And thirdly, it was committed by the fathers or ancestors and continued by them. So there's one sin that a subsequent generation must confess, a sin committed by their ancestors before they can enjoy the full benefits of the Abrahamic covenant, before they'll ever have all the promised land and finally live in peace. Now we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Now, verses 14 through 18, Jeremiah lists some of the blessings the Jewish people finally enjoy in the Messianic kingdom. In verse 14, one by one, every Jew is brought back into the land of Zion. In verse 15, God will then give them righteous shepherds that will feed them with knowledge and understanding, never be guilty or leading them astray. In verse 16, they won't so much as think of rebuilding the Ark of the Covenant, because in verse 17, God himself will reign from Jerusalem in the person of the Messiah. In verse 18, they'll be so reunited not to, um, not to um, split the two Jewish kingdoms again. But the enjoyment of these uh, messianic conditions of verses 14 through 18 are preconditioned by verse 13. Only confess your iniquity. Iniquity, again, is both singular and specific. There's one specific iniquity that must be confessed before they can enjoy the blessings of the, uh, the, blessings of the messianic kingdom. Now we'll go to Zechariah chapter 12. Not familiar with the Old Testament minor prophets, Zechariah will be the second book from the back of the Old Testament. The second book from the back. The last book is the Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> Just go past the Malachi papers, you'll see Zechariah. The last three chapters of Zechariah are one unit, one prophetic discourse the prophet gave uh, to his people. Chapter 13 speaks of Israel's national salvation, and chapter 14 speaks of the second coming of kingdom. But before we can have the national salvation of chapter 13 and the second coming kingdom of chapter 14, what must happen first is found in chapter 12, verse 10. I'll pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look unto me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. Before there can be a national salvation, a second coming and kingdom, what must happen first is Israel looking unto the one whom they once pierced. They must mourn for him as one mourns for his son. Until this occurs, there is no second coming. Now go to the first minor prophet, Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. And look at verse 15. Now, throughout the fifth chapter of Hosea, it is God who is doing the speaking. God is still speaking as we come to verse 15, where God says, I will go and return to my place until they confess their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Before one can return to a place, he must first leave it. After leaving it, he could then return to it. God is speaking as he's returning to his place. God's place is heaven. Before God can return to heaven, he must first leave heaven. And when did he ever leave heaven? He left heaven at the incarnation, when God became man, the person of Yeshua of Nazareth. And then because of an offense committed against him, and not again where offense is both singular and specific, because of one specific offense committed against him, he, went back, he returned to heaven when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. The verse goes on to say he will not come back to earth until the offense is confessed. Adding the warning, in the affliction they will seek him earnestly. And what is the national offense against him? Not so much in killing him, in reality it was the Roman soldiers that killed Yeshua. The Jewish 
offense lies in rejecting him on the basis of being demonized. Until that offense is confessed, there is no second coming. Keep your finger here. We'll come back to the passage momentarily and look at Matthew again, chapter 23. When the chapter a few moments ago, noting this Messiah's renunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of Israel, for leading nation to reject him. When it comes to a close, he closes with a lament. And in verse 37, he summarizes his three-year ministry to Israel, how for long to spread his hands out and give the holy city the messianic protection predicted by the prophets. The verse ends, he would not, literally he willed it, not when they rejected him. So in verse 38, the house, the Jewish temple, is now destined to lie desolate. It will be destroyed 40 years hence. But that knows what he says in verse 39, still addressing the leaders. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. As we mentioned a few moments ago, this is the official messianic reading. They would not say these words of him. They first owned him to be the Messiah. The point he concludes with is this. Just as the Jews will lead the nation to reject him, a day will happen, has to come when they will lead the nation to accept him. The basis of the second coming and the capital B involves two elements. Number one, they must confess the national sin of rejecting him on the basis of being demonized. But secondly, they must plead for him to return to mourn for him as one mourns for his son. Until these two things occur, there'll be no second coming. Now go back to Hosea. Here we have a place where a chapter got split, which should not have been split, because the first three verses of Hosea chapter 6 belong with chapter 5. New context begins down in verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 15 concluded that he won't come back to earth until they confess this offense. Verses 1, 2, and 3 is the meeting of demand of verse 15 of chapter 5. The words are the words of a decree, and decrees are issued by leaders. Come, let's return unto Jehovah. He had torn, he will heal us. He had spitten, he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will raise us up. We shall live before him. Let us know as the follow to know the Lord. He's gone forth as sure as the morning. He'll come unto us as the rain, as latter rain that waters the earth. In the context of the affliction of verse 15, the, which will be part of Armageddon, the Julius will finally recognize why they have suffered these things and what they need to do about it. And then issued this, this uh, national call to repentance. So when this call is issued, that will trigger the last three days of the tribulation, the last three days before the second coming. For the first two of these last three days, they will confess their sin, using the words of Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9, which will fulfill the first part of the basis of the second coming. On the third day, the whole nation will come to faith. When the whole nation comes to faith, will fulfill Isaiah 66, verse 8, Isaiah 66, verse 8, they'll be born in one day. It'll fulfill Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, he'll remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And then they'll begin to plead for Messiah to return using the words in your outline, Isaiah 64, Psalm 79, and Psalm 80. We'll look briefly at the last passage on your notes. Let's go look at Psalm 80. The theme of the psalm is Israel pleading to God to rescue them of a very dangerous predicament when they're facing destruction. And addressing the whole prayer to God, but notice who they're asking for in verse 17. Psalm 80, verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon these son of man whom you made strong for yourself. The one they're asking for specifically is the one at the right hand of God the Father. And now will be the Messiah, the Son of Man, who's been sitting there ever since his ascension from the Mount of Olives. But they will come at the Jewish request him to do so. He'll return to the earth, destroy the enemies of Israel, and finally set up his messianic kingdom. But this must be fulfilled only after Israel's national salvation. What's going to understand this was national salvation and the precondition to it will understand three other things. Number one, understand 
the biblical basis for anti-Semitism and why there's always been this war against the Jewish people since the days of Abraham. Satan knows that once we have the second coming, then uh, Satan's career will be over. He also knows that the, that the Messiah will not return till the Jews ask him to return. So if he can succeed in destroying the Jews once and for all before they have a chance to plead for Messiah's return, there will be no second coming and Satan's career will be safe forever. That's why he's always had this anti-Semitic war against the Jews. That's why things like the Crusades occurred. That's why the Russian pogroms occurred. That's why Nazi Holocaust occurred. And that's why in the tribulation, in Revelation chapter 12, once Satan is in the tribulation, he knows his time is short. And knowing it, he organizes a worldwide Nazi-like campaign to try to destroy the Jews once and for all. Anti-Semitism is part of the satanic uh, program to avoid the second coming. The second thing to understand is why he has used one name more than any other name in Jewish history to persecute Jews. Since the 4th century, 95% of all persecutions against the Jews were in the name of Jesus, the church, and the cross. 95% since the 4th century. Satan knows the name they have to call upon to bring him back, so has the strategy to make the name odious in the Jewish community. It has become odious. And most Jewish people not reacting to Jesus of Scripture, they know nothing about that Messiah. They're reacting to the Jesus of Jewish and church history. And that was part of Satan's strategy to make the name odious, so they will not call upon him. Which will bring on the third application, and uh, something I don't have to emphasize in a congregation like this, where we must practice the principles of uh, Jewish evangelism. Because part of our testimony to our Jewish community is to distinguish between the Yeshua of Scripture and the Jesus of Jewish and church history. In the Jewish mind, as many of you know, until that distinction can be made, it will be difficult for a Jewish person to come and recognize his messianic claims. And that is something this congregation is uh, active in, and that is something all churches need to be aware of. It's a message when we bring out to a larger church not aware of these things.